Book Sixteen, Part One of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrip. Book Sixteen, A.D. sixty-five and sixty-six. Part One, Wild Prodigality of Nero. Fortune soon afterwards made a dupe of Nero through his own credulity and the promises of Caecilius Bassus, a Carthaginian by birth and a man of crazed imagination, who wrested a vision seen in the slumber of night into a confident expectation. He sailed to Rome and, having purchased admission to the emperor, he explained how he had discovered on his land a cave of immense depth, which contained a vast quantity of gold, not in the form of coin, but in the shapeless and ponderous masses of ancient days. In fact, he said, ingots of great weight lay there, with bars standing near them in another part of the cave, a treasure hidden for so many ages to increase the wealth of the present. Phoenician Dido, as he sought to show by inference, after fleeing from Tyre and founding Carthage, had concealed these riches in the fear that a new people might be demoralized by a superabundance of money, or that the Numidian kings, already for other reasons hostile, might by lust of gold be provoked to war. Nero, upon this, without sufficiently examining the credibility of the author of the story, or of the matter itself, or sending persons through whom he might ascertain whether the intelligence was true, himself actually encouraged the report, and dispatched men to bring the spoil, as if it were already acquired. They had triremes assigned them, and crews specially selected to promote speed. Nothing else at the time was the subject of the credulous gossip of the people, and of the very different conversation of thinking persons. It happened, too, that the quinquennial games were being celebrated for the second time, and the orators took from this same incident their chief materials for eulogies on the emperor. Not only, they said, were there the usual harvests, and the gold of the mine with its alloy, but the earth now teemed with a new abundance, and wealth was thrust on them by the bounty of the gods. These, and other servile flatteries they invented, with consummate eloquence and equal sycophancy, confidently counting on the faculty of his belief. Extravagance, meanwhile, increased on the strength of a chimerical hope, and ancient wealth was wasted, as apparently the emperor had lighted on treasures he might squander for many a year. He even gave away profusely from this source, and the expectation of riches was one of the causes of the poverty of the state. Bassus, indeed, dug up his land and extensive plains in the neighborhood, while he persisted that this or that was the place of the promised cave, and was followed not only by our soldiers, but by the rustic population who were engaged to execute the work, till at last he threw off his infatuation, and expressing wonder that his dreams had never before been false, and that now, for the first time he had been deluded, he escaped disgrace and danger by a voluntary death. Some have said that he was imprisoned and soon released, his property having been taken from him as a substitute for the royal treasure. Meanwhile, the Senate, as they were now on the eve of the quinquennial contest, wishing to avert scandal, offered the emperor the victory in song, and added the crown of eloquence, that thus a veil might be thrown over a shameful exposure on the stage. Nero, however, repeatedly declared that he wanted neither favor nor the Senate's influence, as he was a match for his rivals, and was certain 
in the conscientious opinion of the judges, to win the honor by merit. First, he recited a poem on the stage. Then, at the importunate request of the rabble that he would make public property of all his accomplishments, these were their words, he entered the theater and conformed to all the laws of heart-playing, not sitting down when tired, nor wiping off the perspiration with anything but the garments he wore, or letting himself to be seen to spit or clear his nostrils. Last of all, on bended knee, he saluted the assembly with a motion of the hand, and awaited the verdict of the judges with pretended anxiety. And then, the city populace, who were wont to encourage every gesture, even of actors, made the place ring with measured strains of elaborate applause. One would have thought that they were rejoicing, and perhaps they did rejoice, in their indifference to the public disgrace. All, however, who were present from remote towns, and still retained the Italy of strict morals and primitive ways, all, too, who had come on embassies or on private business from distant provinces, where they had been unused to such wantonness, were unable to endure the spectacle or sustain the degrading fatigue which wearied their unpractised hands, while they disturbed those who knew their part, and were often struck by soldiers, stationed in the seats, to see that not a moment of time passed with less vigorous applause, or in the silence of indifference. It was a known fact that several knights, in struggling through the narrow approaches and the pressure of the crowd, were trampled to death, and that others, while keeping their seats day and night, were seized with some fatal malady. For it was still worse danger to be absent from the show, as many openly and many more secretly made it their business to scrutinize names and faces, and to note the delight or the disgust of the company. Hence came cruel severities, immediately exercised on the humble, and resentments, concealed for the moment, but subsequently paid off, towards men of distinction. There was a story that Vespasian was insulted by Phoebus, a freedman, for closing his eyes in a doze, and that having with difficulty been screened by the intercessions of the well-disposed, he escaped imminent destruction through his grander destiny. After the conclusion of the games, Popeye died from a casual outburst of rage in her husband, who felled her with a kick when she was pregnant. That there was poison, I cannot believe, though some writers so relate, from hatred rather than from belief, for the emperor was desirous of children, and wholly swayed by love of his wife. Her body was not consumed by fire, according to Roman usage, but after the custom of foreign princes was filled with fragrant spices and embalmed, and then consigned to the sepulchre of the Julii. She had, however, a public funeral, and Nero himself from the rostra eulogized her beauty, her lot in having been the mother of a deified child, and fortune's other gifts as though they were virtues. To the death of Popeye, which, though a public grief, was a delight to those who recalled the past thought of her shamelessness and cruelty, Nero added fresh and greater odium by forbidding Gaius Cassius to attend the funeral. This was the first token of mischief, nor was it long delayed. Silenus was coupled with Cassius, no crime being alleged, but that Cassius was eminent for his ancestral wealth and dignity of character, Silenus for the nobility of his birth and the quiet demeanor of his youth. The emperor accordingly sent the senate a speech, in which he argued that both ought to be removed from the senate, and made it a reproach against Cassius, that among his ancestors' busts he had specially revered that of Gaius Cassius, which bore the inscription, To the Party Leader. In fact, he had thereby sought to sow the seeds of civil war and revolt from the house of the Caesars, and that he might not merely avail himself of the memory of a hated name to stir up strife, 
he had associated with him Lucius Silanus, a youth of noble birth and reckless spirit, to whom he might point as an instrument of revolution. Nero then denounced Silanus himself in the same terms as he had his uncle Torquatus, implying that he had already arranged the details of imperial business, and setting freedmen to manage his accounts, papers, and correspondence, imputations utterly groundless and false. Silanus, in truth, was intensely apprehensive, and had been frightened into caution by his uncle's destruction. Nero then procured persons, under the name of informers, to invent against Lepida, the wife of Cassius and aunt of Silanus, a charge of incest with her brother's son, and of some ghastly religious ceremonial. Volcatius Tullinus and Marcellus Cornelius, senators, and Fabatus, a Roman knight, were drawn in as accomplices. By an appeal to the emperor, these men eluded an impending doom, and subsequently, as being too insignificant, escaped from Nero, who was busy with crimes on a far greater scale. The Senate was then consulted, and sentences of exile were passed on Cassius and Silanus. As to Lepida, the emperor was to decide. Cassius was transported to the island of Sardinia, and he was quietly left to old age. Silanus was removed to Ostia, whence it was pretended he was to be conveyed to Naxos. He was afterwards confined in a town of Apulia named Barium. There, as he was wisely enduring a most undeserved calamity, he was suddenly seized by a centurion sent to slay him. When the man advised him to sever his veins, he replied that, though he had resolved in his heart to die, he would not let a cutthroat have the glory of the service. The centurion, seeing that, unarmed as he was, he was very powerful, and more an enraged than a frightened man, ordered his soldiers to overpower him, and Silanus failed not to resist and to strike blows, as well as he could with his bare hands, till he was cut down by the centurion as though in battle, with wounds in his breast. With equal courage, Lucius Vetus, his mother-in-law Sextia, and his daughter Polutia, submitted to death. They were hated by the emperor because they seemed a living reproach on him for the murder of Rubilius Plautus, son-in-law of Lucius Vetus. But the first opportunity of unmasking his savage wrath was furnished by Fortunatus, a freedman, who, having embezzled his patron's property, deserted him to become his accuser. He had as his accomplice Claudius Dumanius, whom Vetus, when proconsul of Asia, had imprisoned for his gross misdeeds, and whom Nero now released as a recompense for the accusation. When the accused knew this, and saw that he and his freedmen were pitted against each other on an equal footing, he retired to his estate at Formiae. There he was put under the secret surveillance of soldiers. With him was his daughter, who, to say nothing of the now imminent peril, had all the fury of a long grief ever since she had seen the murders of her husband Plautus. She had clasped his bleeding neck, and still kept by her the blood-stained apparel, clinging to her widowhood in perpetual sorrow, and using only such nourishment as might suffice to avert starvation. Then, at her father's bidding, she went to Neapolis. As she was forbidden to approach Nero, she would haunt his doors, and implore him to hear an innocent man, and not to surrender to a freedman who had once been his colleague in the consulship, now pleading with the cries of a woman, now again forgetting her sex and lifting up her voice in a tone of menace, till the emperor showed himself unmoved alike by entreaty and reproach. She therefore told her father by message that she had cast hope aside and yielded to necessity. He was at the same time informed that judicial proceedings in the senate, 
and a dreadful sentence were hanging over him. Some there were who advised him to name the emperor as his chief heir, and so secure the remainder for his grandchildren. But he spurned the notion, and unwilling to disgrace a life which had clung to freedom by a final act of servility, he bestowed on his slaves all his ready money, and ordering each to convey away for himself whatever he could carry, leaving only three couches for the last scene. Then, in the same chamber, with the same weapon, they sundered their veins, and speedily hurried into a bath, covered each as delicacy required with a single garment, the father gazing intently on his daughter, the grandmother on her grandchild, she again on both, while with rival earnestness they prayed that the ebbing life might have a quick departure, each wishing to leave a relative still surviving, but just on the verge of death. Fortune preserved the due order. The oldest died first, then the others according to the priority of age. They were prosecuted after their burial, and the sentence was that they should be punished in ancient fashion. Nero interposed his veto, allowing them to die without his interference. Such were the mockeries added to murders already perpetrated. Publius Gallus, a Roman knight, was outlawed for having been intimate with Phineas Rufus, and somewhat acquainted with Vetus. To the freedman, who was the accuser, was given, as a reward for his service, a seat in the theatre among the tribune's officers. The month, too, following April, or Neronius, was changed from Maius into the name of Claudius, and Junius into that of Germanicus. Cornelius Orphitius, the proposer of the motion, publicly declaring that the month Junius had been passed over because the execution of the two Torquati for their crimes had now rendered its name inauspicious. A year of shame, and so many evil deeds, heaven also marked by storms and pestilence. Campania was devastated by a hurricane, which destroyed everywhere country houses, plantations, and crops, and carried its fury into the neighborhood of Rome where a terrible plague was sweeping away all classes of human beings, without any such derangement of the atmosphere as to be visibly apparent. Yet the houses were filled with lifeless forms, and the streets with funerals. Neither age nor sex was exempt from peril. Slaves and the free-born population alike was suddenly cut off, amid the wailings of wives and children, who were often consumed on the very funeral pile of their friends by whom they had been sitting and shedding tears. Knights and senators perished indiscriminately, and yet their deaths were less deplored because they seemed to forestall the emperor's cruelty by an ordinary death. That same year, levies of troops were held in Narbonne, Gaul, Africa, and Asia to fill up the legions of Illyricum, all soldiers in which, worn out by age or ill health, were receiving their discharge. Lugdunum was consoled by the prince for a ruinous disaster by a gift of four million sesterces so that what was lost to the city might be replaced. Its people had previously offered the same amount for the distresses of Rome. In the consulship of Gaius Suetonius and Lucius Telesinus, Anistius Socianus, whom, as I have stated, had been punished with exile for repeated satires on Nero, having heard that there was such honor for informers, and that the emperor was so partial to bloodshed, being himself too of a restless temper and quick to seize opportunities, made a friend of a man in like condition with himself, one Pemenes, an exile in the same place, noted for his skill as an astrologer, and consequently bound to many in close intimacy. He thought that there must be a meaning in the frequent messages and the consultations, and he learned at the same time that an annual payment was furnished him by Publius Antoninus. 
He knew, too, that Antoneus was hated by Nero for his love of Agrippina, and that his wealth was sufficiently conspicuous to provoke cupidity, and that this was the cause of the destruction of many. Accordingly, he intercepted a letter from Antaeus, and having also stolen some notes about the day of his nativity and his future career, which were hidden away among Pemeni's secret papers, and having further discovered some remarks on the birth and life of Ostorius Scapula, he wrote to the emperor that he would communicate important news which would contribute to his safety, if he could but obtain a brief reprieve of his exile. Anteus and Ostorius were, he hinted, grasping at empire, prying into the destinies of themselves and of the prince. Some swift galleys were then dispatched, and Socianus speedily arrived. On the disclosure of his information, Anteus and Ostorius were classed with condemned criminals, rather than with men on their trial, so completely indeed that no one would attest the will of Anteus, till Tigellinus interposed to sanction it. Anteus had been previously advised by him not to delay this final document. Then he drank poison, but, disgusted by its slowness, he hastened death by severing his veins. Ostorius was living at the time on a remote estate on the Ligurian frontier. Thither a centurion was dispatched to hurry on his destruction. There was a motive for promptitude arising out of the fact that Ostorius, with his great military fame and the civic crown that he had won in Britain, possessed too, as he was of huge bodily strength and skill in arms, had made Nero, who was always timid and now more frightened than ever by the lately discovered conspiracy, fearful of a sudden attack. So the centurion, having barred every exit from the house, disclosed the emperor's orders to Ostorius. That fortitude which he had shown in fighting the enemy, Ostorius now turned against himself. And as his veins, though severed, allowed but a scanty flow of blood, he used the help of a slave, simply to hold up a dagger firmly, and then pressing the man's hands toward him, he met the point with his throat. Even if I had to relate foreign wars and deaths encountered in the service of the state with such monotony of disaster, I should myself have been overcome by disgust. While I should look for weariness in my readers, sickened as they would be by the melancholy and continuous destruction of our citizens, however glorious to themselves. But now, a servile submissiveness, and so much wanton bloodshed at home, fatigue the mind and paralyze it with grief. The only indulgence I would ask from those who will acquaint themselves with these horrors is that I be not thought to hate men who perish so tamely. Such was the wrath of heaven against the Roman state that one may not pass over it with a single mention, as one might the defeat of armies and the capture of cities. Let us grant this privilege to the posterity of illustrious men, that just as in their funeral obsequies such men are not confounded in a common burial, so in the record of their end they may receive and retain a special memorial. Within a few days, in quick succession, Aeneas Mella, Cyrilius Anicius, Rufius Crispinus, and Petronius fell, Mella and Crispinus being Roman knights with senatorian rank. The latter had once commanded the Praetorians, and had been rewarded with the decorations of the consulate. He had lately been banished to Sardinia on the charge of conspiracy, and on receiving a message that he was doomed to die, had destroyed himself. Mella, son of the same parents as Gallio and Seneca, had refrained from seeking promotion out of a perverse vanity, which wished to raise a Roman knight to an equality with ex-consuls. 
He also thought that there was a shorter road to the acquisition of wealth through offices connected with the administration of the emperor's private business. He had, too, in his son, Annius Lucanus, a powerful aid in rising to distinction. After the death of Lucanus, he rigorously called in the debts due to his estate, and thereby provoked an accuser in the person of Fabius Romanus, one of the intimate friends of Lucanus. A story was invented that the father and son shared between them a knowledge of the conspiracy, and a letter was forged in Lucanus's name. This Nero examined, and ordered it to be conveyed to Mela, whose wealth he ravenously desired. Mela, meanwhile, adopting the easiest mode of death then in fashion, opened his veins, after adding a codicil to his will, bequeathing an immense amount to Tigellinus and his son-in-law, Cosutanius Capito, in order to save the remainder. In this codicil he is also said to have written, by way of remonstrance against the injustice of his death, that he died without any cause for punishment, while Rufius Crispinus and Anicius Carilius still enjoyed life, though bitter foes to the prince. It was thought that he had invented this about Crispinus, because the man had already been murdered, about Cyrilius, with the object of procuring his murder. Soon afterwards, Cyrilius laid violent hands on himself, and received less pity than the others, because men remembered that he had betrayed a conspiracy to Gaius Caesar. With regards to Gaius Petronius, I ought to dwell a little on his antecedents. He passed his days in sleep, his nights in the business and pleasures of life. Indolence had raised him to fame, as energy raises others, and he was reckoned not a debauchee and spendthrift, like most of those who squander their substance, but a man of refined luxury. And indeed his talk and his doings, the freer they were, and the more show of carelessness they exhibited, were the better liked, for their look of natural simplicity. Yet, as proconsul of Bithynia, and soon afterwards as consul, he had showed himself a man of vigor, and equal to business. Then, falling back into vice, or affecting vice, he was chosen by Nero to be one of his few intimate associates, as a critic in matters of taste, while the emperor thought nothing charming or elegant in luxury, unless Petronius had expressed to him his approval of it. Hence jealousy on the part of Tigellinus, who looked on him as a rival, and even as a superior in the science of pleasure. And so he worked on the prince's cruelty, which dominated every other passion, charging Petronius with having been the friend of Scyvinus, bribing a slave to become an informer, robbing him of his means of defense, and hurrying into prison the greater part of his domestics. It happened at the time that the emperor was on his way to Campania, and that Petronius, after going as far as Cumae, was there detained. He bore no longer the suspense of fear or hope, yet he did not fling away his life with precipitate haste, but having made an incision in his veins, and then, according to his humor, bound them up again, he again opened them, while he conversed with his friends, not in a serious strain, or on topics that might win for him the glory of courage. And he listened to them as they repeated, not thoughts on the immortality of the soul, or on the theories of philosophers, but light poetry and playful verses. To some of his slaves he gave liberal presents, a flogging to others. He dined, indulged himself in sleep, that death, though forced on him, might have a natural appearance. Even in his will he did not, as many in their last moments, flatter Nero or Tigellinus, or any other of the men in power. On the contrary, he described fully the prince's shameful excesses, with the names of his male and female companions, and their novelties in debauchery, and set the account under seal to Nero. 
Then he broke his signet ring, that it might not be subsequently available for imperiling others. When Nero was in doubt how the ingenious varieties of his nightly revels became notorious, Cilia came to his mind, who, as a senator's wife, was a conspicuous person, and who had been his chosen associate in all his profligacy, and was very intimate with Petronius. She was banished for not having, as was suspected, kept secret, which she had seen and endured, a sacrifice to his personal resentment. Mecunius Thermus, an ex-praetor, he surrendered to the hate of Tigellinus, because a freedman of Thermus had brought criminal charges against Tigellinus, such that the man had to atone for them himself by the torture of the rack, his patron by an undeserved death. End of Book 16, Part 1